In the July 18, 1991 ruling on the case of Stambovsky v. Ackley, the Honorable Justice Rubin of the New York Supreme Court Appellate Division wrote, Not being a local, plaintiff could not readily learn that the home he had contracted to purchase is haunted. Having reported their presence in both a national publication and the local press, defendant is a stop to deny their existence, and as a matter of law, the house is haunted. It was the end of the road for one of the most unusual cases to wind its way through the New York courts. A case where lawyers were more frightening than the spirits at the center of this strange phenomenon. I saw our house for the first time on a hot July day in 1967. Wrote Helen Ackley in her Reader's Digest article, Our Haunted House on the Hudson. Read throughout our episode by an actress. A bedraggled old Victorian. It had stood vacant for seven years. Its waist-high lawn clutched about a sturdy stone foundation. Its wood-shingled roof was awry. But as I followed the real estate agent and my husband, George, into the spacious hall, I knew I was home. The home was at One La Veta Place in Nyack, New York, a small village founded in 1883 with a population just over 6,000 people that still retains much of its late 19th century charm. Richard Ellis, listing agent for the home, gave us the following description. It was a big Victorian three stories high with a large tower on one side. It was uh, asymmetrical and it had a big wraparound porch that uh, faced the Hudson River and it was on a dead end street and it looked like it was uh, cared for through the years, but uh, it looked like it needed some sprucing up. Which was nothing out of the ordinary for Helen and George Ackley, as Cynthia Cavanaugh, one of their four children, told us. To begin with, my dad had always been a house flipper before you flipped houses. <laughs> Usually, and, and the, due to the fact that we moved around a lot since he worked for uh, Martin Marietta, you know, that usually gave him about enough time to go in, find a nice house, add on to it in some way or another, and then we'd move on again. When we went into this one, it was like, oh, we know what we're doing for the next umpteen years. The only problems that were there were inherited because of a house that had sat with no maintenance, not because people had gone in and broken windows or graffitied the walls or anything like that. So that in and of itself was kind of a, a like the house was more or less sending out vibes that, you know, if you don't want to respect me, I'm not going to respect you. It took no time for the history of the home to come to life for the Ackleys. On their first day moving in, Helen was approached by a group of neighborhood children. Helen Ackley wrote, The neighborhood children broke up a lively ball game to question me. Yes, we had bought the house. Yes, we did have children, four. Although they wouldn't arrive for another week. When I told them they could look through the house, two of the kids hung back. The others giggled. They think there's ghosts in there. They're scared. Did you know you bought a haunted house? 
When Helen spoke to a plumber working on the home that day, he did not want to leave her alone. He said that while he was in the house by himself, he had heard footsteps pacing the stairs in the room above him. Helen assured him everything was okay, but despite Helen's calm nerves, something was causing others in the home to be on edge. She wrote, That night I told George about the two conversations as we got ready for bed. He nodded his head gravely and pulled up the covers. Sliding in beside him, I realized the hall light was burning. With a groan, I started up. Where are you going? George demanded. To turn off the light, of course. Leave it on, I looked at him. Since when have you slept with a light on? Since the first night I moved in here, and I don't want to discuss it. Good night. He turned over, his back to me. George would eventually be able to sleep with the lights off again, as the hauntings became a part of everyday life. Our ghosts have continued to delight us for nine years. When he's home from college, our son George, like Cynthia, is shaken awake each day. Son William has only had his bed shaken once when he slept in Cynthia's room, and daughter Kara Lee seldom, as she is an early riser. But Kara Lee is on the lookout for the presence that often makes her feel that someone is sitting on the empty living room sofa. And just recently, my husband saw a figure in the hall, which disappeared as he came up the basement steps. Only the foot was in his line of vision clad in a soft, moccasin-like slipper. Helen was so enthusiastic about her spirited guests that she would tell everyone and anybody about it. It appeared in several newspaper articles where she freely spoke about things that go bump in their house. The peak came when she was published in the May 1977 issue of Reader's Digest. I turned my head. The room was empty. I started working again. But the eerie feeling persisted, so I spoke out loud. I hope you like the color. Hope you're pleased with what we're doing to the house. It certainly must have been lovely when it was first built. As I talked, I kept painting, but I felt the energy of those eyes focused on the nape of my neck. I looked over my shoulder again. He sat there in midair, smiling at me from in front of the cold fireplace, hands clasped around his crossed knees. He was nodding and rocking. He faded slowly, still smiling, and was gone. But I knew then that he approved of the work our family had lavished on our mutual home. What did he look like? He was the most cheerful and solid-looking little person I've ever seen. A cap of white hair framed his round, apple-cheeked face, and there were piercing blue eyes under his thick, white eyebrows. His light blue suit was immaculate, the cuffs of the short, unbuttoned jacket turned back over ruffles at his wrists. A white ruffled stock showed at his throat. Below, breeches cut into his kneecaps. He wore white hose and shiny black pumps with buckles. No, I wasn't drinking that day. No, the paint fumes hadn't got to me. No, I don't know why I saw him then and have never seen him since but I do know that he seemed happy to be there, and I was proud to meet him. Cynthia even says that she had her own personal ghost while staying at the house. And it was uh, one evening, I was staying up very, very late and watching something on TV, I'm sure. There is a, a sun porch that has French doors 
from two rooms, off of two separate rooms. So I, I went to make sure that the French doors were locked because they had a habit of popping open unexpectedly with nobody else's around. I made sure the TV room doors were closed and went in to go into my bedroom. The French doors had long clear glass in it. And I looked in and there was a woman all dressed in white sitting on the edge of my bed looking into where my dresser mirror was brushing her hair and she turned and looked at me and kind of nodded to me and I just nodded back and went back into the TV room and got a glass of water and sat there for a few minutes and then kind of out loud I said I think I need to go to bed now and went back in using the hallway door rather than the the, uh, the French door and nobody was in there then so I just went to bed. I saw her three times while I was in high school, but mostly from behind, like she was walking away from me the other two times. Only once did I see her face to face. Before we moved out here, my current husband and I, we weren't even in the same room. He saw her. He described her the exact same way as I described her. I go, oh, you saw my ghost. And he goes, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> Why I've always referred to her as my ghost is like she was always keeping an eye on me. Uh, none of us were really afraid. We thought, you know, startled with the way things would pop up and disappear and, and, and people would be around. But I think only once did my mom have any fear, even when, when she saw the, the man sitting in midair, she wasn't afraid of him. All through the years, even when after my dad died and, and my youngest brother was the only one quasi at home, my youngest brother was getting ready to go to college. You know, we all worried, well, are you going to be okay all by yourself? And she goes, I'm never all by myself. I always feel fine in this house, so don't worry. So she lived another uh, 15 years in the house, more or less alone. For Helen, the company of spirits made their haunted house a home. She wrote, We have come to savor these happenings. They give a sense of the continuity of the past with the present and with the future. These elusive spirits seem gracious, thoughtful, only occasionally frightening and thoroughly entertaining. Now we wonder, if the time comes for us to move again, is there any way we can take our otherworldly friends with us? As the 80s came to an end, the time had come for Helen to leave Lavetta Place. Ellis Realty, owned by Richard's family, handled the sale. It was time, she was a widow, she wanted to move to Florida. House had been on the market, like I said earlier, for a couple of years. Like any normal person, uh, older, kids are older, out of the house or almost out of the house, it was time to sell. At the time she put the house on the market, I was living with her, with my children and my new husband. So there was quite a lot of interest in the house. The interest spread to New York City, where it caught the eye of Jeffrey and Patrice Dombofsky. They were living in New York City. New York City is a theater market for uh, homes in our marketplace. And I think he was in the financial business and uh, she had some sort of business. So, you know, seemed like a nice couple and they were qualified to purchase the house. So that was all great. Oh, I, I was quite excited for mom because she had told me that they had been through two or three times. They were expecting their first child. We thought the timing was wonderful. As the deal was closing, it became obvious that something 
was strange in the neighborhood. A week or two had passed after the contracts were fully signed, and my agent had gotten a call from Jeff Stamboski, and he said that uh, they wanted to meet with the owner uh, and, and talk a little bit more about the ghost. So I was not at that meeting, but my agent was, and uh, the, the Stamboskis had come, and they brought a woman with her who can only be described as a stereotype of what a gypsy woman might look like with beads and a long dress and a thing on her head, and that's how she was described to me. So she was at the meeting with Mrs. Ackley, who I understand with her usual passion, spoke about the ghosts in great detail. They sat down, they, they spoke about it. Uh, it was a polite meeting. My agent said everyone left, it was friendly. And then the next day we received the call from the seller's attorney that uh, he had a call from the buyer's attorney that they wanted their money back. They were not gonna proceed with the purchase of the house. And it's because of the ghosts. Not only was the sale not going to proceed, but the Stambovskis wanted the money they had put down returned. The Stambovskis claimed that they had never been informed of the home's phantom tenants until it appeared on a walking tour of haunted Nyack homes, and that the market value and resaleability of the property was greatly diminished. So uh, Stambovskis, by saying they wanted their money back and that they weren't going to close, they were defaulting on the contract. So uh, I'm not an attorney, but legally the seller has the right to then keep the down payment. The Ackley's had every right to keep that money. It was not a down payment. It was what was called earnest money. But earnest money, from what I was told, was different than what most of the financial world thought of as a down payment. Most of the time, down payments are considered fully refundable within you know specified legal time. Seven working days, 30 working days, whatever. At the time, earnest money was not necessarily refundable, and it was to guarantee that I'm giving you this money because I am so earnest about buying this house that nothing's gonna stop me. That's why she she let it go to court. If you had any doubts about it, why did you wait so long before you told me? With the filing, Stambovsky, Helen Ackley, and Ellis Realty found themselves at the New York Supreme Court. M. Neil Brown, PhD and co-author of The Legal Environment of Business, explained. The New York court system is kind of strange. The first court you go to is the Supreme Court. You know, we're accustomed to thinking a Supreme Court is like that, so that's the final court in the land. But in New York, the actual court of first instance, in other words, the court you go to first, is the Supreme Court. So we, we were involved. Uh, that was the lower court. We were represented by an attorney. In fact, uh, it was my brother, uh, Jeff Ellis. The Ackleys were represented by their attorney. My brother's point of view in representing us was that we represented the property properly. We were dutiful with our uh, obligations as a realtor. We disclosed everything legally that needed to be disclosed and that, you know, we were not at fault with anything. So, you know, it was a little nerve-wracking, you know, and it was also kind of exciting because it was such an unusual case and there was tons of publicity, uh, you know, that was starting to be generated uh, around this. You know, kind of sitting at the edge of your seat waiting to see what was going to happen, what was going to come of it. My brother took a tact in, in defending us in stating that, you know, that uh, he went 
and quoted certain passages from the Reader's Digest article. One in particular was a description of the gentleman in the Revolutionary War garb. And my brother kind of tongue-in-cheek said this could have been a description of George Washington. Who's to say that it wasn't him and the property could be worth more money? The Stamboskis argued that it was devalued. He had a lot of fun defending us. You know, we felt we felt really good afterwards. You know, we didn't think we did anything wrong anyway, so we weren't really concerned about being found guilty. But, you know, it was it was an unusual situation, but but we felt good after the first case. Initially, the courts decided to dismiss the case based on the legal idea of buyer beware, otherwise known as caveat emptor. What that means is, look, as a consumer, you're supposed to be a rational, intelligent chooser who does their due diligence, who checks out all of the relevant characteristics of whatever it is you're buying whether you're talking about hamburger meat or whether you're talking about 92 acres in upper New York state. Your job as a consumer is is to be responsible as an individual and check it out. Despite their initial loss, the Stambovskis stood their ground and appealed the decision. The Supreme Court of New York, who heard the Stambovsky case first, dismissed it. And they dismissed it in large part because they said, why are you here? We, we don't understand the cause of action because they searched too in their legal records and they couldn't find any other cases as well. So they're basically like, I'm really not sure why you're in here. So they dismissed it. So that really suggests that there may not well be other cases like Stambovsky. It went to the appellate division. It was kind of troublesome that he uh, had the right then to appeal it, uh, he being Stambovsky. So we were kind of at the edge of our seats to see see what would happen then. Uh, my brother was able to convince the court that we, the broker, w- were lawful with everything we did. And with respect to, again, uh, doing our job and disclosing, representing everything as we uh, technically knew it. And uh, there was nothing on the books that ever said we had to disclose about a ghost or anything like that. And then when they decided to uh, pursue it even further, it kind of surprised me. It's like, well, you kind of knew what you were getting into when you were told by the first court that it's buyer beware and there's was no damage done. You know, your reputation wasn't harmed in any way. Your your ability to move in wasn't harmed in any way. So why should you want to not move into the house? Ellis Realty was released from the suit, but Stambovsky still pursued getting the money back from Helen Ackley, insisting that he had never been informed of the spirits before closing, a claim which was disputed. Actually, I remember her telling them kind of offhand. I don't think Mr. Ellis actually put anything out, whether it was haunted or not, because like I said, a lot of people in, in Nyack especially have haunted houses. Mom's just was the first one to get notarized. Mrs. Domboski had said something to the effect is, yes, this is going to be a beautiful place to raise our family. And my mom's comment was something to the effect of, I'm sure the ghosts will really love having young children here. And that was the only time that I know she mentioned ghosts, and it was just an offhanded remark. My two younger children were um, five and eight, so they had all grown up 
even my children grew up knowing knowing there were ghosts in the house. My father was the real estate broker in, in our office. Mrs. Ackley had called the office and he spoke to her. She told him she had heard the good news that the contracts of sale were signed by the Stamboskis uh, and the contracts and the down payment check were with Mrs. Ackley's attorney. She called our office and spoken to my father that she was not going to sign her end of the contracts until the Stamboskis were told about her ghosts. So my father spoke to me and I spoke to our agent about it and uh, our agent very kind of cautiously <laughs> called Jeff Stamboski. Uh, it was during the day, perhaps he was at work and she uh, told him that the owner claims that she has uh, ghosts in her house and I remember distinctly she said that he laughed and said we'll have to call the Ghostbusters. I remember that distinctly. So I am a hundred percent, I believe a hundred percent that Jeff Stamboski was told about the ghosts and, uh, and he laughed about it and then we told Mrs. Ackley that we told him about it and then she signed the contract because that was important to her and, and I don't know why but that was important to her that we her representatives tell the Samboskis about the ghosts and we did that I don't think the court believed her if the court believed her then he has no case so the court didn't believe her now they don't say in the decision why they didn't believe her I don't know I think one thing that happens in a situation like that, she has every reason in the world after the fact to say, well, we told him. The New York Supreme Court was not convinced. On July 18, 1991, the judges sided with the Stambovskis in a 3-2 decision. The Honorable Justice Rubin wrote in the majority opinion, from the perspective of a person in the position of plaintiff herein, a very practical problem arises with the respect to the discovery of a paranormal phenomenon. Who are you going to call? Applying the strict rule of caveat emptor to a contract involving a house possessed by poltergeists conjures up visions of a psychic or medium routinely accompanying the structural engineer and Terminex man on an inspection of every home subject to a contract of sale. It should be apparent, however, that the most meticulous inspection and the search would not reveal the presence of poltergeists at the premise or unearth the property's ghoulish reputation in the community. There is no sound policy reason to deny plaintiff relief for failing to discover a state of affairs which the most prudent purchaser would not be expected to even contemplate. The Stamboski decision is really unusual. It's unusual because the uh, majority of the judges said, okay, ordinarily caveat emptor, but in a spirit of fairness, and the way lawyers say that is in equity courts, and what that is is a reference to ancient courts that supplemented legal courts by taking certain kinds of maxims of fairness and some rules of fairness. If you wanted to, you could have your case heard in equity court or you could have it heard in a court of law. Uh, almost everybody's ab abandoned these equity courts now all over the world, but when judges want to, remember these judges are humans. They're going, that's not fair. That's not fair. She sold him a house, but actually what she really sold him was a house 
and a reputation of the house. And because she sold him the reputation as well as the house, she didn't say a damn thing about the reputation. She's engaged in what the court called active concealment. And so in the interest of fairness, following the principles of equity law, we find that in this case, caveat emptor doesn't apply. We're not just going to say that the person had a personal responsibility to figure out what kind of house is this, what kind of reputation does it have. We're going to say, is it really realistic to expect a person to know what's in Reader's Digest and to remember what the story said, even if they are familiar with the Reader's Digest? Is it really fair to expect a person from New York to know what's happening in Nyack. Uh, incidentally, I think that this case, just in terms of poltergeist, when the judges say, as a matter of law, this house is haunted, what they mean by that is, we're not going to allow the seller to say, we were just kidding. We're not because she took $3,000 from Reader's Digest. She's also had newspaper interviews and she's had these house tours in the community. She has behaved as if there are poltergeists and therefore we're going to hold her to it as a matter of law, not because we're saying there are poltergeists in the house, but as a matter of law, we're going to base our decision on the fact that she was selling one kind of house to him, given what he knew, or at least claims to know, and she actually had a different kind of house. She had a house, and she also had a house that was haunted. Haunted by reputation. Whether there's poltergeist, you know, we leave it to you. It was ridiculous. How can you, uh, as I've told you, I have reason to believe that ghosts may exist, but uh, I, to, to, to hold a realtor uh, responsible to having disclosed that a seller, let's say it's some nut, I'm not saying this is Ackley at all, but if it's some, you have a listing and, and there's some very, uh, you know, whatever, uh, eccentric person who claims they have a ghost, uh, that you then have to make a big deal to a potential buyer and disclose that when it's something that you can't even measure for a fact exists, you know, it was ridiculous. And that's why uh, after that, went into law that a realtor had to disclose a ghost uh, as they would a leaky roof or a faulty furnace that was in law for about six months until Governor Cuomo, uh, Mario Cuomo, uh, left office and when uh, Governor Pataki became governor of New York State, that was thrown out. Uh, and at that point, then realtors did not have to disclose ghosts again. So I, I thought it was absurd to, to make that law. You know, you have to have some cojones to say that as a judge because you know that American law is consistent with caveat emptor so you're really sticking your nose out and one thing judges don't like and that's to be overturned because when they're overturned it's basically saying what are you smoking judge they're not going to they're it's going to be a rare judge who has the strength the personality that they're going to take a legal principle like caveat emptor and just say, well, in this case, it doesn't apply. And that's what they did here. But to Helen Ackley, 
ending up in law books didn't spook her. She was kind of proud that it was the first legally haunted house. She uh, she um, kind of took that as a, a sign that things are progressing in, in the world, that there are things out there that we know nothing about, and we shouldn't be so close-minded as to, to think just because we don't know anything about it, we should fear it. So because she never feared living there. She she didn't think, and, and she'd admit that, yeah, ghost stories and, you know, sometimes people have terrible problems with uh, the supernatural, but um, if you go into it with a, a feeling that, you know, things can be worked out, they usually can. Things can, can work out in the long run. After the lawsuit in the early 90s with the Ackleys and the house went back on the market, there was, uh, you know, uh, everyone knew that of the lawsuit and, and whatnot, and the house sold within a couple of months. Uh, actually, it might have been four months. So it sold very quickly after the publicity. Since then, the home has sold around five times, with owners including rapper Modest Yahoo. Its resale value does not seem to have diminished. In 2019, it was on the market for $1.9 million. Despite the turnover, none of the residents since Helen have reported any ghosts, poltergeists, or hauntings. If you believe in ghosts, maybe you have to feel it. You have to be open to feeling it, certainly to yourself, if not outwardly to others. And if maybe you feel it, you're, you're going to see that. Uh, and I think that uh, uh, from a professional point of view, uh, Realtors have to be honest and fair, but I, I don't see any reason why one would uh, have to disclose if a ghost uh, exists in a house based on what a seller may say. So um, I would just say caveat emptor. <laughs> Beware and ask a lot of questions if you're gonna if you're gonna buy a house. There you go. Helen Ackley passed away in 2003, but her relationship with One Lavetta Place lived on. She was buried near the home. After the funeral, their old neighbors in Nyack, the Auslers, held a memorial for Helen. My sister's boy took pictures of the, the house, and after, and this was back in the early 2000s, so he had a, a camera with film, not, not a digital camera, and she got the photographs developed. And in two windows that look out the front towards the Auslers' house, you can see handprints and faces looking out the, uh, the glass. It's kind of hard to see if you can't make out any features or anything, like there's a real person standing there. You can just see shadows of hands and, and so, yeah. It, it's kind of a, a mixed blessing of a, a feeling towards it. It's like, well, it looks like everybody showed up to say goodbye to her, but is she gone in to live with them, or did she go on to, to other other places? And it's one of those things that you kind of ponder and can never find the answer. Let us know if you would buy a haunted house on Twitter and Instagram at strange underscore phenom and on Facebook at strange phenomenon, all one word. Please give us a review and subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. Visit www.strange-phenomenon.com for a full list of sources and more episodes. Strange Phenomenon is hosted by Ray Torara. 
It's written and produced by RJ Blake and Ray Tarara. Theme music by Tara Monk. A special thanks to Cynthia Cavanaugh, Richard Ellis, and M. Neil Brown for sharing their knowledge and experience with us. Additional music provided by Kai Engel, Sergi Cheramizanov, and Fezlian Studios. Links to the artist's websites are in the show notes.